just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Edgar Kerrett, the Israeli author of short stories, whose latest collection is Fly Already. Edgar, welcome. How did you start writing short stories? How did you, I mean, what is it that, that makes someone a short story writer? I think that it comes from all those things that I can't figure out myself. Many of my short stories just start with me trying to explain some, something to somebody and finding myself choked and very emotional about something that I cannot communicate rationally. And this is when I sit down and I, and I start writing a story without knowing a lot about the plot, just knowing some kind of an image or a basic situation. And as the story kind of unfolds, I understand better. They seem to be all sort of set in... Well, you know, you've got one in which the narrator's father's just turned into a rabbit... And then others that seem to be much more kind of like, as it were, set in what's recognisably a non-magical real world. Do you sort of have a vibe before you start any given story, which world it's going to be set in? Or No, because I think that the, what the creates the, uh, the story world is the emotional DNA. And for me, I can tell you about a story if it's funny or if it's sad or if it's hopeful. But the the fact that if somebody levitates there or just takes the train, it's something that I need to think about. It's not really the the high point of the story. It's kind of a nonchalant magic realism. You know, those fantastical things, they just happen, but but the story is not about them. Quite a, a good handful of these stories, a small handful maybe, are stories that are sort of, well, their narrator or protagonist is an Israeli short story writer and they, you know, talks, I mean, there's one that's a very funny one and you find yourself thinking, is this autobiographical where you've got a friend who says, you know, I want you to write me a short story that's going to get me laid. Yeah. I mean, do are these things that... Are- Not only is he a friend, but he, he was called Todd and after I published this story, he started using his second name. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, Adrian. Now he goes by Adrian. You actually caused your friend to change his name. Did the story work in, in the uh, sense it was no, supposed no. to work? No, no. He liked the story a lot, but he still somehow, uh, since then, he goes by the name of Adrian and not Todd. That must be a feeling of extraordinary power. He's going to have to change his name again if he hears this <laughs> podcast, isn't he? He's a great guy. He's a great guy. And and again, you know, I think that is that this story about somebody asking you to write a story that will have some function. It doesn't matter if it will get the girls uh, to go to, to bed with him or, I don't know, will make him earn money or make him two inches taller. I think it just, uh, it's this point where you really deal with the fact that, that stories are have no pragmatic effect whatsoever, and I guess that's what makes them uh, omnipotent. I mean, the, the sort of concision and the fact that... I mean, I, I've heard one writer, I think it was Sarah Hall, saying the kind of key thing with short stories is, like, where you jump in and where you leave, and that's what sort of isolates them in the world, you know. it's. It, I mean, do you find you have a sense of what happens outside the story. I mean, there are a couple of stories in here. There's one in which, called Crumb Cake, in which, you know, the the protagonist has a lottery ticket and it's like all these numbers come out and you're like, has he won the lottery? Has he won the lottery? But, you know, we don't 
hear about it. And there's another one where the guy's trying to get a girl. Um, it's a sort of convoluted thing involving marijuana and a court case. And But the central question the reader's got is, you know, is he going to get a date with the girl? Again, you leave it. Do you know what happens to your characters afterwards? Are you curious? Or is uh, it like- I think I know. But also, I think I think it's less important because I think, let's say, the story about this guy that wants to go on a date with a girl, I think that... Uh, in the end of the story, he learned something that uh, is m- much more fundamental and existential about a relationship and a w- role in this world. And what he learned is that even if the girl will go out on a date with him, it will not be the way that he had imagined it. You know, it's, it's kind of like somebody who was living in a bubble and n- now experiencing friction. And in the end, something is going to happen. He's going to take a, ter- a right or he's going to take a left. But this friction is going to stay with him for the rest of his life. So so I think that for me, many times, the plot is not really the most important thing. I think for me, let's say in, in Crumb Cake, the guy with the lottery ticket, I'm pretty sure that he had won the lottery ticket. But I think that the important thing is about him uh, understanding something about his relationship with his mother and uh, their kind of mutual dependency. So, again, I sometimes feel that I, that I write stories, I, you know, you, people write stories for different reasons, but I think that I write stories from a very special angle that makes those stories a little bit like uh, narrative dreams, that the things that lead them is something, uh, is, is not uh, the plot or it's not a statement uh, about life, it's uh, something internal, it's kind of like a trying to sort sort out something in your subconscious by t- taking something from inside and putting it outside and letting it unfold. Yeah, I mean, you talk about dreams. There are quite a lot of dreams within these stories. I mean, I'm conscious that sometimes you get that sort of writing advice that says, you know, you shouldn't make give your characters symbolic dreams. And you seem to be saying, ah, hell, I'll give my characters dreams, allow the dream within the dream. Yeah, is I, it cheating? I, I, no, I don't think it's, che- it's cheating. I think that, that, that there is something about uh, uh, writing that it's kind of a celebration of the imagination, you know. So you can imagine a plot and you can imagine somebody saying something and you can imagine somebody thinking a thought and you can imagine somebody dreaming a dream, you know. I don't think that, uh, that it's a, a no-no, you know. I think that it's just part of the story. And I can say that... Sometimes I write stories that, that begin in dreams that I have. And sometimes I have dreams and I use those dreams for my characters. So nothing goes to waste. <laughs> no. You mentioned that the, um, you know, you caused one, one person to change his name. There's a very sort of touching story about the narrators. We maybe presume your relationship with the first girl you kiss and you say at the end of the story, I hope I'm not... I don't know, can you give spoilers for short stories? Um, yeah, 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 you, you can. Well, I hope it's not a spoiler, but you say at the end, you know, if she's reading this, I want to thank her again. Did she read it? Did you hear from her? Has she changed her name too? Well, I think, I think it's nice that I write a story and you already kind of feel her physical existence, you know, it means that uh, I did a good job with this one. I think that, that you know, that uh, the story is a combination of a lot of biographical stuff and a lot of stuff that I made up. And I, I, again, you know, I think that the, the focus is not the facts, but it's just this kind of a feeling that I had as a virgin a teenager, you know. And uh, there could have been three different girls that could have read it and had something to do with this story. So I hope that at least one of them did. 
<laughs> There's a question also that occurred to me about the sort of moral responsibility of a writer. I mean, maybe that bears on, on what we were just talking about. But in Fungus, you talk quite a lot about the process of writing a story and you say, you know, this, it's a scene where somebody's, well, somebody's taken very ill and there's various other people attending on them. And you say, you know, at the end of practically every paragraph, you know, this story's not about this person, this story's not about this person, this story's not about this person. But then you say, you know, who's responsible? And it's me for writing a short story. Do you feel like you have a responsibility towards your characters? Because you're like, why did I give this guy, a, you know, a heart attack or whatever he suffered? Well, actually, I, I, what's liberating for me about writing stories is, is that fiction is the only haven that I have in my life where I don't feel responsible for anything. Because, you know, I mean, if we speak now, I don't know, I can say something that will offend you or I could spill my cup of tea on you or, I don't know, I could uh, tell a, a bad joke and offend the audience. But when you write a story, this act of inventing a story because all the characters do not exist, the, you know that a bad story will not uh, damage the ozone layer or nobody's going to get cancer from it. So it's very, very liberating. But I, well, I think that what this story is really about, it's about why the hell are we doing it? Why should somebody sit down and invent a person who doesn't really exist and make him go through all kinds of turmoil? Like, and why would people want to read about this kind of imaginary person? And I think that for me, whenever I sit down and write a story, there is a part of me saying, you know, you could be doing something useful now. You know, you could be, I don't know, mowing the lawn. You could be cleaning the house. Why are you following some kind of a history of somebody who had never existed? But do you think it's a, it's a kind of harmless outlet for authorial sadism? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that for me it's harmless in that sense that this is a place where I can uh, think my thoughts fully without uh, thinking about their outcome. And I think that he, for me, he, its existence is crucial because uh, by writing those stories, I can uh, articulate all those kind of things that I, that I cannot put in words in everyday life. Also, there's, I mean, you're an Israeli writer, so you know, you're always writing to some extent against a political background. I mean, do you see some of your... I mean, can you escape completely from politics into a short story? Uh, no, I, I think that uh, sometimes I can write stories that have to do with the region itself, you know. But sometimes I can write stories that, that could deal with uh, androids or clones or, I don't know, all kinds of uh, uh, sci-fi stuff. And it's also a way of talking about racism and about uh, people who feel superior of others just because in the story they're a clone or, or they're AI, you know. And I actually feel that sometimes when I want to have a dialogue in Israel, distancing the story and making it more fable-like, it makes people more susceptible to begin a dialogue about something. Because the moment that you write something that is hyper-realistic, they immediately say, oh, but it didn't happen like this. And there weren't uh, three Palestinians, there were five of them. And, you know, and so sometimes uh, when you can kind of strip a situation from its uh, uh, actual facts and just talk about its sense, people are more open to listen. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the stories that does, well, seems to touch on, you know, you've got done Yad Vashem, which is a story, but it begins, and I wonder whether that was the germ of the story, with this plane of glass. I'm sure that's a real thing in the museum yeah. between the, I think it's between sort of 19th century Jewish life and 
Kristallnacht, and this pane of glass is supposed to be this sort of invisible barrier between two different universes, I think you put it, different periods of history. And yet the story begins with your protagonist not seeing the pane of glass, walking into it and breaking his nose or bloodying his nose. Is that... I mean, I wonder whether you feel sort of reverence and extreme seriousness with which, you know, a sort of previous Israeli generation has dealt with the matter of the show and things that have come before. There's this kind of weirdly slap, nervous slapstick that I'm mean, looking at someone like Shalom Auslander also, you know, yeah. I guess is maybe a contemporary of yours roughly. Uh, yeah, well, well, well I, I, th- I think we, with me, this kind of experience of this guy breaking his, his nose in the Holocaust Museum is th- this idea of how can you uh, express your pain and talk about your pain in the shadow of such a horrifying incident. And basically it's a story about a, a couple who's breaking up in the Holocaust Museum. And in the end, you know, when this guy is being dumped by his wife and he cries, you know, people come to him and comfort him and think that he's crying because he, he was just exposed, you know, to to the horrifying nature of the Holocaust. But I, I think that for me, there is something very biographical about this story because uh, I'm a second generation to Holocaust survivors. You know, my mother had lost her entire family in the Holocaust. My father survived by hiding more than 600 days in a hole in the ground, and he lost his sister. And uh, all my life, you know, when I was a child, and I, when I would hurt myself, and people would ask me, like, is it painful? And I would say, no, and because I felt that it was inappropriate for me to complain because even if I would have to get five stitches, I knew that at this age my mother saw her kid brother being murdered in front of her eyes. So I said, compared to that, I have nothing to complain about. And this this struggle uh, to feel and connect to your emotion, even though you know that uh, you're all the time, uh, you, you, you live a very lucky existence, is something that I think that... Uh, metamorphed into into the story. And is it something, do you think, that's sort of generational with you, that there is, you know, a generation now in adulthood that's labouring Oedipally under this kind of... I don't think it's generational, I don't think it's generational, because I think that, you know, there are many uh, second-generation uh, writers in Israel, and most of them write very much like the old generation. I think that it's something about this kind of a specific uh, narrative that I have in my life, you know. It, it's, I don't think that uh, these stories uh, disrespect the Holocaust. If anything, I think that they try to, to, to respect it and to humanize it, to take those people who are survivors and not make them just kind of symbols of, uh, you know, victimhood and, uh, and sainthood. Because, you know, like my, my father would tell me a lot of stories about Jews who were with him in the ghettos and who were total assholes, you know, and some of them died and some of them survived. And he, and he always said about the Holocaust, he said, these were the worst years of my life, but they were years of my life. You know, it's the first time I kissed a girl, the first time I smoked a cigarette was during the Second World War. And he said, you know, sometimes when I see these movies, I feel that I'm not, those people are not human. But they were, you know, with their many faults. And I think that my, my parents always fought this kind of attempt to dehumanize the Holocaust just to keep it clean. They wanted, they wanted people to learn lessons from the Holocaust. They wanted people to, to see the 
complex humanity that was behind it, you know, and not to reduce it to kind of a Star Wars narrative of good guys and bad guys. Yeah. You've also got a lot of that, you know, not quite dehumanization, but slippage between different persona. You, I mean, the window is a very good example. Again, I don't want to give a spoiler, but the, it's a very strange situation. A character wakes up with no memory in a room in some sort of institute and he kind of starts interacting with what he thinks is a simulated woman who's, you know, he meets through a, a sort of doorway that's a projection. And she, I mean, do you have a sort of fascination with those flips, with people not being who they think they are? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's also one about, um, i trying to remember what the title is, that's, that's got a similar sort of conceit, Tabula, Tabula Raza, yeah, yeah, which has the same sort of conceit. Do you see those stories as linked? Yeah, yeah. I, I, first of all, I, I think that, you know, uh, as a reader, I really like uh, uh, books and stories that disorient me, that confuse me. I think, you know, Kafka is probably my favorite writer. And the thing that, that I once said in an interview, that I said that if life is a obsessive-compulsive behavior, then a, a Kafka story is a slap to your face. It's this kind of thing that kind of wakes you up to your life and you ask yourself what's up and what's down and you try to understand again, you know, in what world you're living in. I think that the biggest danger is that many times we, we can live in a systems that uh, by force of inertia, we accept them and we keep going through them, but we never really ask questions about them. So I think that m- many of my stories, uh, the characters, they think they figured out the world around them, but then they understand they didn't really. Why, why did you choose Fly Already as the title story? Is there a significance to that? Well, it's a it's a complicated story, but the the idea is the title in Hebrew is actually called a, a glitch at the edge of the galaxy, and the the American publisher didn't want this title because he thought that it sounded too much like a sci-fi book, and the, somehow the the story Fly Already came out as a, as a title story, a lot because of the fact that the story Fly Already in Hebrew doesn't have the title Fly Already. Because flower ready in Hebrew, if you say it, it means like fuck off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so because in the story, it's a story about somebody who wants to jump off the edge of, of a building and there is a child who thinks that he's a superhero and he's impatient for this guy to jump because he wants him to fly and he shouts to him, fly already, fly already. I couldn't use it as a title because the Israeli audience seeing it on the cover would think it's something else. So I think that, you know, those... When you write short stories collection, sometimes you find something became a title for a total random reason and that the books have uh, different titles in different countries. You know, I, I think I have uh, collections that, that can have up to six or seven titles in different countries. Yeah. Do you, do you pay a lot of attention to your translations? I mean, do you, obviously you're fluent in English. Do you sort of feel the stories have a different vibe in English than they do in Hebrew? Yeah, for sure. I want to say, you know, my, my books came out in 45 languages and and I, I don't speak most of them and you have very little control about the translation. I try, I always encourage my translators to ask questions about the stories and have conversations about the translations because, you know, like uh, one of my favorite topics is, is me and my stories. So it's really nice to talk with people all over the world about how they understand something. And many times when you talk about translation, you learn 
new things about the stories, you know, because it's actually when you understand what you can and cannot do with it in a different language, it makes you uh, realize what you were aiming for. And the idea is that uh, languages, you know, they function in a different way. I, I can give a lot of examples. Maybe I can give just one example. I had a story, not in this collection, but in a prior collection, about a, a real estate agent that rents a, a, a looks for an apartment for a woman who's about to divorce her husband because she caught him cheating on her. And as they go and he shows her the different apartment, he understands that the woman uh, didn't come to him but, uh, randomly. She came to him because he rented the love nest for her husband. And she also tries to figure out stuff about uh, the relationship that her husband had and about his lover. And uh, now the thing is that as they go between the different apartments, uh, she keeps asking him questions. And here I want to say that, you know, that in English you have he, she, and it form. In Hebrew, you only have he and she. So a chair or a table, they're either masculine or feminine. And in the Hebrew story, she says to him, is she beautiful? And he says to her, not only is she beautiful, but you'll have your own parking. Because she's asking about <laughs> yes. the lover and he wants to answer about the apartment. So when you come to translate this to, to English, the only thing you can do is reinvent it because the languages don't function the same way. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, you talk about the glitch at the edge of the galaxy being the title. I mean, that sort of makes sense, given that that story sort of threads the book in this. I mean, it's a sort of increasingly grumpy email exchange between somebody who wants to visit a space-themed escape room and somebody who's trying to close it for Holocaust Memorial Day. Why did you choose to sort of thread that through the book rather than having it just as a sort of straight email exchange? Well, you because know, it, it feels like one story, but yeah, when I wrote it, you know, I I kind of I wrote it as one story, but I somehow felt that there was something very kind of overwhelming about it because basically what you have in the story it's this kind of a competition of victimhood. It's two people who try to to do these things that is very common, by the way, in the Middle East. It, you know, it's like if you think about it, you know, Israelis, Palestinians, almost uh, all the people who are in the Middle East have a long history of suffering and of victimhood. And what we often do is like, you know, is compare scars where the trick is to say that your scars are much greater, you know, than the other and to ignore the other people's scar or, or to kind of belittle them, you know. And I think that uh, there is something about the story that it's that uh, it's so uh, condensed, this, those kind of insults and the uh, bluntness that I really wanted to thin it out. You know, I wanted people to read two of those emails and then have a break and then return and read some more. Yeah, so it's a masterpiece of passive aggression, actually. <laughs> <laughs> With, it should be said, a very, very funny punchline. Uh, can I ask a bit about your process? You Do you kind of write the stories out and, as you described, see how you're, where you're going with them? Because they're all quite spare, you know, you, there's not much fat on them. Do you then go and trim frantically and, and shape them afterwards? Yeah, well, well I think that, that for me, the, the process is like that something happens in, in life. I see something, I hear a sentence that I say, yeah, this feels like something in me, but I don't know exactly what. And the way that I imagine it, it's as if like the story is like this kind of really fast uh, animal running around your house. And you kind of, you jump and you hold it by the tail and the tail is this kind of little incident, you know, that, that you kind of try to cling into. 
And then it runs all over, the, all over your apartment and breaks things while it drags you, and in the end you get somewhere. And then what you do, you go through all this uh, wreckage and, and you edit a story out of it. Many times when I write stories, I write much longer stories. And then I say, ah, oh, you know, this, all those things I had to write just to understand what the story is about or just to understand where the story is uh, heading. So the first draft is many, many times can be twice or three times as, as long as what's left in the end. And do you ever get to the end of the first draft and go, there wasn't a story here? Most of the times it happens. It's like, you know, I, I, I tell my students that uh, for me, writing is very much like a trustful. You close your eyes and you fall backwards and I hope that the story will catch me. But uh, more often you just wake up on the floor with a bump on, on your, uh, the back of your head and with 20 pages that don't make any sense. And many times I write stories and it's not in, this, in, the, in the way that I don't know how to end it. It's just that I write a story and I say I don't understand why I wrote it. I don't understand what it, it is about. I don't understand what's behind it. It's as if... I don't know, like there is something in it that, that by the way, sometimes those kind of uh, lost stories sometimes return years later and then something clicks and you say, ah, you know, I know, it's like in that story that I once wrote and nothing came out of it. Now you obviously write these very surreal stories and in these surreal stories there's quite a lot of weed smoke. Do you find smoking dope helps you to write? Can you write while you're stoned or does it give you ideas? Yeah, for me, for me, actually, I like uh, smoking weed. But for me, actually, there is something about smoking weed that is a little bit like writing. You know, it's like if I smoke weed, I don't need to write. They have the same function because with me, I think being second generation to Holocaust survivors, I'm always kind of overworking. I always think about what's going to happen and uh, what I should do not to offend somebody and what I should do not to get into trouble and how I can be a better person and all those kind of things. And I, the feeling is that all the time I'm kind of hyperventilating. And I think that uh, when I write and when I'm stoned, I'm in the present, you know. So when I write, I say, wow, wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be amazing if actually my mother was God and when she started going through a dementia process, then there will be thunderstorms. And when I'm stoned, I say, Oh, wouldn't it be great if I had mushroom pizza here and I could eat all the six slices on my own? So it's a little bit different way of being in the present, but I, I can feel this kind of similarity. And for me, it's kind of an escape from life. Yeah. Would you ever do a novel? Have you done a novel? I should, uh, should know no. the answer to that. So. No, I, I wrote this kind of a tiny novella called Nella's Happy Campers, but uh, usually when I, when I want to write something longer... I uh, I write a script. I me and my wife we just finished a, this mini series, like a four episode mini series that we wrote and directed for uh, the French Arte, and it came from an idea for a story that I understood that it has to be long, and I prefer writing it in a script because I think that for me when I write short fiction the feeling is as if I'm losing control. I have no responsibility, you know, this ultimate freedom. I'm not working for anybody, no structure. And uh, the moment that I have to do something that is more structured, I like to do it uh, to explain to myself that I, I have to build this structure because the producer has to understand it, somebody has to fund it. I have to imagine those people who are essential for the process for me to be kind of 
to do only the hard work and not only the... So you feel someone's marking your homework a bit? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now you, you said slightly mournfully, just, just while we were making tea a second ago, you said that you don't have a very big public in the UK. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It, well, it's funny because I, I'm much... And you will after this, obviously. No. <laughs> I, I think I'm much more popular in the US and more widely read there. And I, I, if I may say so, I feel that they get me, you know, that when they read my story, they read my stories the way that I write them. Well, in the UK, I feel that uh, many times people, even when they like what, they, what I write, they understand it in a different way. And for me, it's very strange because I grew up uh, on uh, British TV, you know, I grew up like on uh, Monty Python and uh, Black Adder and I don't know, read uh, Douglas Adams and, and all this kind of British humor for me, is, it's the funniest humor. But somehow when I do my take of like saying, ah, okay, I'm writing like the stuff that I like, I guess something else comes out. And this thing is, is somehow closer to American sensibility. I, I don't understand what... It's, it's, I think it's very typical of me. It's like as if uh, I kind of learned something and when I came to practice it, you know, when I try to build those IKEA furniture, always something... It's like, you know, I buy a table and a unicorn comes out, you know, <laughs> for the book. So I think that... I, I guess I'm kind of mislearned... Kind of my mislearned British humor is something that makes American laugh. Well, it made me laugh anyway. <laughs> Edgar Carrot, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I want to let you know too about an upcoming event where I'll be talking to Robert Harris about his new novel, The Second Sleep, for a live recording of this podcast. The event takes place on Wednesday the 23rd of October at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster. You can get tickets at spectatorcouk forward slash events. I very much hope you'll come and join us. <laughs>